Editor's note, this podcast was first published on YouTube on 27th July 2021 as a video. So if you're interested on what we're discussing on screen, do head down to Newbie Dice on YouTube to find the episode. It's General Gaddafi. Hey, I'm Johan. I'm new to Kings of War. Practically new. Started third edition. Hey, I'm Keith. I've been playing Kings of War for a while now. All right, and I'm Paige. Welcome to our second episode. Today, we're going to be talking about Helpis Rift, the campaign supplement. Let's see if it gets blurred. Ooh, it's a little bit blurred. There we go. Helpis Rift. And we ran a local campaign. So we're going to talk about that and Kings of War campaigns in general. But before that, let, we have two new people on the cast, Johan and Keith. So I'd like them to introduce themselves. Let's start with Johan. Hey, I'm Johan. I guess I'm rather unique. I don't start my wargaming career with GW. I started with Privateer Press, Warmer Hawks. That's when I started eight years ago. I was playing World of Warcraft and then my guild kind of stopped playing. One of my guild may actually say he wanted to try wargaming and so I tag along. We came to the local store. So we went there, we took a look around, and then he said he wants to start this box where there is two big war machines in on the front page. And I was like, okay, why not? Let's try. Since we stopped World of Warcraft, there's no more raiding. Let's take a leap with a new hobby. And so that's how I got started with Wargaming. And I played through Mark II of Warm Hearts. Eventually, I became the press ganger of Singapore. I tried to build the community, I ran events, I pushed for the game to grow. It was not an easy job. It was rather quite successful while I, we had it going. We had the Malaysian Masters, where Australia, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore, and Malaysian players all come together to play for, I think that was running for three years. I would say it's pretty successful to have uh, the Southeast Asia group to come together to play. After that, when Mark Three launches, I had a kid. I still have a kid. Uh, yeah. And then I was... <laughs> so I was thinking I couldn't, I couldn't run the press ganger anymore. I couldn't grow the community anymore. And I thought about slowing down my gaming. So I stepped down from the press ganger and actually all together from War Machine and Hots because the Mark III launch was disastrous. So I think the Mark III launch lost them many, many players around the world, including three of us here, I think. <laughs> yes. So from then on, I started to delve into 40K, started Space Wolves, loved the models, started to love kit bashing, and then I delved into AOS when it was better than a two-page rule. From there on, I couldn't... I couldn't stand the GW rules writing. It was horrible. I'm sorry, GW, but really. So I started to look for something better. And that's when Pitch came in and said, hey, let's try Kings of War. Uh, he says that the rules are good. I can use any models I want. So I dabbed into it and I started from third edition, the launch of third edition, and here I am still playing. That's how I came into Kings of War and my war beginning career. Yeah, so some success story sharing of uh, Kings of War. Actually, 
when warmer hot, our community slowly dwindled down, right, after third edition. Uh, at the height of warmer hots in Singapore, I think the, the community was quite healthy. I think there were 20 plus, 30 plus people. I would say maybe 12 to 15 active ones. Yeah, the, and then... Yeah. And then a lot of lurkers la, that plays once in a long while. Yeah, so me, I met Johan during the Warmer Hots days. I had one year of Fantasy 8 edition experience when I went to Warmer Hots while Johan was completely new. But we are sort of the two newbies in Warmer Hots and we made our way through. Congrats, Johan, for growing the community quite successfully. Actually, when uh, the end times happened, we got quite a few players into Warmer Hots. Yeah, and when I delved to Kings of War, I've always been preaching to Johan, but he didn't want to jump over. Third edition was when he decided to give it a go, right? Since there's this launch of a new edition, he wanted to give it a try. So uh, kudos to Mantic for a successful third edition launch, converting one player to Kings of War. Johan, you play a lot of uh, PC games as well, right? So how do you manage uh, playing uh, PC games and uh, tabletop so games? I usually only get one night out for tabletop games, thanks to being a parent. <laughs> so I maximize that as you... I, I always try to arrange two games in a day. Uh, one in one in the daytime and one in the evening. Now that we are working from home, I can work from the local gaming store, <laughs> work from Hammer House, it says work from home. <laughs> yeah, so that's how that's that's how I manage my game, my tabletop. I get one day a week, and if I'm lucky, I can go to the man cave at General Guard's house because he's just staying five minutes away from me, and I can get a game there if he's up for it. Other than that, I struggle between PC gaming and painting. I am still not a very motivated painter, and I always look for the easy way out. <laughs> you know, uh, KJ just told me one thing recently, and he said, one day, one model, in 20 days, you get a hot. <laughs> so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to achieve that right now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one thing about PC games, I, I don't play PC games anymore, but you know, you play some games, you get good at it, and then suddenly you stop playing, and then like, that's it, right? The, all the time you spent on that game, other than the enjoy- enjoyment you had during the time of playing, but there's nothing left over from the game that you have abandoned. But when we paint the model, it's permanent, right? We, we paint. Yeah, I, I strongly feel that as well. You know, like, at, the end, at the end of the day, you know, in our hobby, you have something to show for it, and something you can be proud of for many, many years. And you can put it on the shelf, you display it, you stare at it, and you feel happy. You know, whereas you know pixels and zeros and ones, unfortunately, you can't really stare at them you know, for, for life. I think going forward, when I move, going to move house in the short future, where I will get a display case from SG Display. So when I have to fill that cabinet up, maybe I'll be more motivated to paint more stuff. <laughs> awesome. So. Next, let's have Keith introduce himself, veteran wargamer, please. I, I've been exposed to like uh, Warhammer models uh, ever since I was like four or five years old. Because my, my uncle used to bring me to like a comic book store. They actually sold the old metal models. So I used to kind of uh, stare at them and like go like, wow, these are so cool, you know, and especially the undead ones. But, you know, being, being like five years old, I was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't afford these. I, I, really, I really didn't know, didn't expect that years later. I would actually get into this very game. So I started in 2001 uh, with Warhammer 40,000, third edition. And uh, shortly after that, I got into Warhammer Fantasy as well, Sick Fat. Back then, I used to paint terribly, feeling around with no real guidance. But I think it was it was an interesting experience to, to learn and to pick up the hobby on my own. I kind of started with my school friends, actually. I think it was 2003 uh, when... Uh, War Machine launched its first edition. I got into that as well. So I was very involved in War Machine from the beginning. Very active in the community as well. Until, like you said, when Mark III kind of blew up the whole scene. 
I've not only played Warhammer and 40k and fantasy for many years, but I've also been involved in events, run tournaments, and of course played in a lot of tournaments. My most memorable experience was when I went with uh, our team Singapore to EPC, and that was 2013. I, I really loved the experience. It's kind of like a feel the Olympic spirit when you play in these global, global tournaments. There was just so much respect among all the players, and I kind of felt that wow. Got to meet a lot of really cool people and just had fun over those few days. I've also been involved in quite a number of other games. Uh, I play Malifo as well, and I'm also the henchman. And I've also done tons of other games. Drop Zone Commander, Drop Fleet Commander, Granite Fall, Alpha Gothic, Necromanda. I, I basically, I, I've almost done it all. Keith, you play the GW games, 40k, and you play AOS? Yes, I play... Almost all of them, I guess. How you keep up with the meta changes of uh, GW games? I'm struggling very hard. <laughs> <laughs> I actually formed a tournament team locally for 40k. We are actually one of the very strong local teams. Well, my team name is Team Losers, actually. I call them Team Losers on purpose. Just, you know, pretend like we're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I think facing the meta, it's good and all, but uh, there has to be a point where you actually step back and say like, I have too much stuff, so I'm just gonna try and make it work with what I have. You know? It's also good if you have a few armies, because that, that way, if one of your armies kind of gets nerfed or it's like all level drops or anything, you can at least try and shift to one of your other armies. I think that's how I manage it, by having at least two or three armies to rotate between. Now we're gonna talk about Hell Peace Rift, the campaign. This campaign ran from November 2020 to January 2021. Me and God, we were planning this campaign, so Firstly, we were thinking about the makeup of the players. So we have uh, players, the whole spectrum, right? So for myself, I don't like the territorial map concept of campaigns because I felt that it's a, another mini game by itself and I need to balance the mechanics of that. And on top of that, you know, it will take people's attention from playing the actual Kings of War battles. So I rather just, you know, do a, do a campaign focusing about the Kings of War battles. So that's just my personal uh, preference. So what we ended up with was to split the team, uh, split all the players into two sides, two alliances. There are some benefits to this. Of course, uh, the experienced players will be there to guide the new players. New players feel less pressured, right? Because got people to carry them. And you have teammates to cheer you along. Uh, we also implemented team battles in future. But there are also some drawbacks to this format, which I will discuss later in this article. And just before this, I, I played uh, one season of uh, Blood Bowl and Johan was uh, aware of that. So I enjoyed the leveling up mechanics in Blood Bowls. We used it, I talked to God about it, and he, he found that the Clash of Kings 2018 has these uh, leveling rules. So we tweaked it. Everybody has a general, which is a hero unit, and a bodyguard, which is a regular unit that can level up. Uh, these are the rules, but I'm not going to go through them. Basically, you get a general that can has two items as an upgrade, and then it can level up. The rules can be found on Dash 28. Uh, we have an article that posted all the rules. Of course, you can pause if you want to just look through these. You gain experience points when the general or bodyguard kills and survives the battle. Right? These are the. This is the list. The only thing we change is dread. In uh, second edition, there's no such rule as dread, and I think. In second edition, the dread rule when you roll number 12 is it cancels off inspiring, which is very, very powerful, I feel. Since third has dread, right? So we just say, okay, then the rule is dread. Because there are four, five, five planes, like actually, like four planes and the astral plane. So we decided to have two weeks on each plane. So then the thing went for about eight weeks to nine weeks. And then we had a finale which is played on the Astral Plane and it'll be a team game. You score points at the end of every game. And one thing that I did in Warmer Hots that was pretty successful, so then I brought it over to Kings of War, was that you score one extra point for writing a battle report. 
after the game so that you can share it in the chat groups. And it kind of excites the rest of the players. They can read up and see what's going on with the, the game that was being played rather than, oh, somebody who played who and who won, that's it, you know? But rather, they can read up and enjoy the reports of it. What do you think of this uh, mechanic? Uh, I had fun. I had a lot of fun writing my battle reports. <laughs> I have them in the slides later on. <laughs> I literally wrote a story for my battle report. <laughs> yeah, I think it started out great, right? But uh, near the end, everyone was a bit... I think it was we got a little bit fatigued near the end. So everybody slowed down. Uh, I think the length of the campaign has something to do with it. Also being uh, eight to nine weeks long is a, a bit of a long period. If I were to do it again, I think four to six weeks. Uh, six weeks is just perfect for me because I can feel the energy go down after six weeks. So six weeks would be perfect, which is the current campaign that we're running is going to run for six weeks. This is uh, Keith's battle report. He basically <laughs> he wrote his uh, battle report in awesome. poem form. So look at all this. <laughs> so his general is Lichy Lich and it has all this. And I'm just gonna get out of full screen because you can see there's actually a lot more. <laughs> if you can see my screen, right? There's a lot more to the poem, but I'm just gonna just showcase this part. And yeah, he probably took a while to come up with the whole passage, right? Yeah, I think maybe about hour or two <laughs> thinking about it right yeah, the, the hard part was getting it to rhyme yes amazing so that's pretty fun and uh, this was uh, if I'm not wrong Roderick's one he always writes very nice uh, I think he's, uh, his literature is quite good like, he writes very nice stories and he, he even writes a prelude first and then the actual battle so the like, prelude is like why, why the two armies are fighting and then he'll do a battle report after I also did this uh summary of every every plane i'll write a narrative that drives the story forward and is based on the battles that were fought during the two weeks of the campaign so there's all the different battles that i weave into the narrative i was pretty excited at the start but also at the end i was very tired <laughs> writing the story uh did you guys read any of the story i did i did awesome yeah. I did. Okay, so at least uh, it's not uh, in vain. So people have been reading the story. So just some ideas for viewers out there. You're going to run a campaign. These are some stuff that you can try to do. Okay, let's talk about the different planes because people are going into the global Healthy Rift campaign very soon, right? So let's talk about what to look out for in each plane because uh, the players here played them. Post-production note, for those of you who are predominantly listening in to the podcast, I'll be reading the Helpies Rift special rules for you guys so that you can follow along. First up, we have the campaign setting, the special rules of Helpies Rift. There will be five planes or realms that you will be playing these games on, and they are namely the, the Material Plane, the Abyssal Plane, the Empyrean Plane, the Ethereal Plane, and the astral plane. There are new campaign magical artifacts that you can take throughout all the planes, and each plane comes with one specific magical artifact that you can take for that plane only as well. Next, there is the channeling table. On each plane, there is an effect labeled from 1 to 6. At the start of each turn, you will roll 1, 2, or 3 dice to see what numbers you roll and the corresponding effects on the table. From there, you pick one of the three effects to take effect during your turn. Now, how to decide how many dice you roll? You do that by adding all your spellcasters' levels together. 
So for example, if I have three level one characters or a level one and a two or a one level three spellcaster, I will roll three dice. And as the game progresses and my spellcaster dies, you will roll less dice. Take note though, you roll a minimum of one dice even if you have no spellcasters on the table. So you will at least always get an effect, just that you don't have the choice. Some of us build our lists so that we always have uh, three dice to roll at least at the start of the game. Some of the effects are pretty good and you want to make sure you increase your chances of hitting them. Specific to each plane, each plane also has a special rule that's taking effect on the map. Mercenary units that you can purchase from other factions, though in our campaign nobody did that. Two special terrains that has a bit of special rules, for example a heal with brutal aura. And two spells specific to that plane that you can purchase on your spellcasters. Firstly, any of these items that are available throughout the campaign, did you guys take any of them? Um, I took the wizard's pointy hat, I think that's the most popular one. Everyone wants to hit that level 3 to roll 3 dice for channeling. I also took a wizard's pointy hat because I took two brute mothers, they are level 1 each, so I made one level 2. Anyone else took any of the items here? Yeah, I think I took the cloak of the dragon banisher. Oh, what does it do? <laughs> Gives and stay against flying. Was it ever useful? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that's the only other uh item I took. The rest are all magic focus. So I think I one. Think, uh, I think I was I was trying to take the stuff of the forsaken. Uh, I can never find the points for it because I, I felt that it was like perfect for undead. How many spells did you? I mean, if you put it you put it on like a, a lich king, because usually for surge you normally only need like one inch. It's good to cast surge on like the minus one or minus two modifier. Mm. Okay, I like the fire heart, although I didn't take it. This was a actually an item from second edition. Yeah, I, that was a very good item, but I, I just couldn't find the points for it. Yeah, so for myself, I only have green life, so I don't need two two of these spells. Right. Alright, let's move into material plane and things to look out for. Spells of the material plane. First spell is Alchemist's Curse. Range 12, targeting enemies and you add the unit, target unit's defense value to the end value of the spell. It deals damage at piercing 4. Level 1 for 15 points, it starts at 1 dice plus the defense of the opponent. At level 2, it's 4 dice plus the defense of the opponent for 25 points. And at level 3, it's 6 dice plus the defense for 35 points. And take note, you need to be of these spellcaster levels to buy them at the appropriate levels. Next spell is Magical Mimicry. I doubt anyone took that. You target an enemy with a spell, and when you hit, you get to cast one of its spells, excluding Surge. Number one thing, Alchemist's Curse is very, very good. Everybody, if you can take them uh, at level 2 most of the time, right? Level 2, you roll 4 dice and add the unit's defense. So if they're defense 5, you, are, you add like 5 dice, so you are rolling 9. Piercing 4, you're going to wound pretty much all of it. My general that took this has Vicious, so you can reroll once, right? Yeah, and you... so this spell combined with Elite and Vicious is crazy good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did anyone take it at level 3? Did, Keith, did you try it at level 3? No, I, I actually didn't use it at all. Oh, wow. People playing uh, in the material plane do look out for that. The plane's special rule is Eye of the Storm. When a spellcaster is within 12 inch from the center of the board, that's exactly the dominate circle as well, they may choose to reroll any number of failed hit dice on their spells. 
for each reroll they will suffer one wound so pretty strong for rerolling your failed or misses on your spells but you will take damage from it so next is the channeling tables channeling table effects number one this unit gains plus one speed number two plus one waiver and route value number three at six inch range to the first spell cast of this unit number four enrich plus five attacks in melee number five confused monster target a monster or titan it will deal damage to units all around it Number six, select a friendly individual. It gets crushing strength plus one and doubles its attacks against enemy heroes, monsters, or titans. So the number one thing to look out for in a channeling table for material plane is the plus one speed because that means all your units potentially tread an extra two inches. So you gotta look out for that. It might be a gotcha if you're not prepared for that. Anyone else has anything to add for this one? And which is awesome. Five more attacks is, can really turn the tide of battle. Yes, especially if it's a flank charge, I think that means it doubles. I think the consensus among uh, Helios was that uh, the material plane was like, hands down, the best plane for Shangling. Yeah, we kind of really loved it. And, and that's why we kind of stuck to it for the finale as well. You and us both, Gorat, also stuck to it for the finale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number six is very down. strong as well. Number six. Where, where they where they get uh basically they all become Mikhail, then they have plus one CS. So well, I actually forgot the plus one CS part, but yeah, that's the part. Uh, double is attack. Now I clarified with a RC member that if uh the guy already has dual list, then it will quadruple its attacks. Hmm. Which actually <laughs> happened, remember? Yes, yeah. it happened many times. Many yeah. times in the final. Uh, because Roderick has uh, he plays Brother Mark, which has the Exemplar Hunters, they also double attacks against heroes, monsters, and titans, so he quadrupled his attacks when he was playing on this plane. Oh, yeah. so strong. Truly a monster hunter. Um, the story, I'm just gonna scroll through so that people who wish to read it can just pause it and give it a read. I feature them in the, the battle reports that I write also. So next, let's move on to the Abyssal Plane. Abyssal Plane's special rules. You only play scenarios with loot counters in this one. And so at the start of the turn, and every unit that's holding a loot counter will roll a d6. On a 1, 2, 3, they take 1 point of damage. And on a 4 to 6, they regain 1 point of damage. No nerf tests are required. So this special rule is not very impactful in the game. Abyssal Plane's spells. First one is Scorched Earth. You can buy it at 2 dice for 20 points at level 1 or 3 dice at 30 points at level 2. Level 3 has no difference. So if you score a hit, the opponent's charges will be hindered. This is an 18-inch spell targeting enemies. So their charges will be hindered and they will also lose Strider and Pathfinder. Right. So this happens for their next turn. Of course, counter charges are not affected. Next spell is Blazing Inferno, 12-inch spell. It's like the opposite of Alchemist's Curse. It rolls a lot of dice as a base, but it subtracts the target's defense value from the number of dice you roll. So for level 1, 25 points, 12 dice, minus N, which is the defense. Level 2, for 30 points, at 14 dice, minus N, the defense. And level 3, at 35 points, for 16 dice, minus N, for the defense. There's no piercing for this one doesn't suffer stealthy cover or anything like that as well. The spells, actually, at first it looked great, but I think end of the day when we played it, it felt a bit lackluster. What do you guys think? Um, I Personally, I love the Scorched Earth because I'm playing a Beast of War and I'm playing Defense 6 Golem, so Scorched Earth really works for me. Yeah, 
So they'll always be hindered, right? Except then when it's counter charging, they're not affected by by the initial charge. Even they have Pathfinder or Strider, it will they'll lose it and they'll always be hindered. I, I remember taking it, but not casting it in the end because I think I took the first charge. I charged first, so no point casting into it because they're gonna counter charge. What about you guys? I I tried the Blazing Inferno. It's it's pretty. It's okay. It's basically a fireball with no modifiers, so that that helps. Like it's like units with stealthy, but ultimately right. it's very expensive. No hit modifiers, but you do roll less dice the higher the opponent's defense is, so it's good at killing low defense stuff. Yeah, you get level 3. At worst, it's 10 dice. But it's usually about 11, 12 dice, which is decent. Right, and then the, the loot uh, the loot tokens will randomly either do you 1 damage or heal you 1 damage, right? Uh, not a lot of effect, I felt, in the game. Abyssal Plains magic item is called Hourglass of the Cronius for 20 points. Once per game in melee after rolling to hit and to damage but before taking a nerf test or rolling attacks from other units in the same melee, the player may decide to discard all the rolls and re-roll everything again. The second result stands. Now because uh, Gorat had a strong lead in the material plane, when we went into the Abyssal Plane, every Ilios player will have a free Hourglass of the Cronius effect they can use once per game on any unit, any battle. So I think when it's free, it's awesome, right? But yes. if it's not free, I don't know if people would take this item because it is quite costly. And you only take it on the unit and only that unit gets to reroll. That's the difference. Right, I think nobody bothered to bring special units because everybody just wanted to take their own forces, right? You might not even have these models. We always play with the terrain. Some of them are interesting. Some of them are okay. None of, th- none of them are especially broken. Abyssal Plains Channeling Table. Number one is Cloak of Death. Number two is Headstrong and Fury. Number three is Enemy minus one to Waver and Route value. Number four is targeting an enemy that is not engaged in melee. And take note, this effect is at the start of the turn, so you can still charge afterwards. The enemy immediately takes D3 points of damage. No nerf test cost for this damage taken. Number five is Elite or Vicious. Number six is an exploding effect. So you choose a unit. If it routed, units engaged with it suffers D3 hits at piercing two. In terms of the channeling table, there's a lot of damage dealing effects in the Abyssal Plane. So Cloak of Death dealing 1 damage, right? Just taking 1 nerf off. And then there's a D3 damage as well, as long as it's not engaged in melee. Elite in dishes to, to help in melee combat. So what you like to look for in the channeling table is something that helps you uh, in range, something that helps you in melee, and something that provides some funky effect like plus 1 speed. So for this one, it's mainly damage dealing. The fluff based on the battles on the Abyssal Plane. I'm just going to scroll through it. So in this third plane, where I wanted to mix it up, we started to introduce team games where each player brings 1,300 points. Why I chose this value is because uh, if anything less than that, it feels very restrictive in list building. Especially if you do 1,000, it's very boring to build a 1,000 point list, but 1,300 felt like it's it's less than thousand five, but it felt close enough to thousand five. And without breaking the the size of the game, two of you will be two thousand six. It feels like a two thousand five hundred point game. All your allied effects will affect each other. In terms of the effects, Imperium Plane Special Rule: Winds of Change. This has a wall of text, but basically what it says is. If your spellcaster from round 2 onward and its movement on the opponent's half of the board, it will heal damage based on the round number but roll one less dice for spellcasting. If it stays on its own half of the board, it will take damage based on the round number 
but roll one extra dice for spell casting. No nerf test, however, if the damage takes it past its route value, it will immediately die. Uh, this has the most interesting special rule. You all remember this one where if your caster is on your side of the board, you will take damage, but your spells are stronger. And you'll take damage based on the round number. So round six, you take six damage. If your caster is on the opponent side of the board, you will heal life based on the round number, but you roll one less dice when you're casting spells. So take damage and have stronger spells or heal life and have weaker spells. Do you all have any experience with this uh, special rule? Yeah, I, I felt like I was on the clock. Because <laughs> my, my, my casters normally hang back and support. They were very rarely on the opponent side of the board. Did they die? Because uh, I think if you cross your route value, you ultimately die. I had one Necromancer die like once, but I tried to manage it by like flashing across the, the female center like one turn <laughs> and then going back. Yeah, I remember my game against Johan, his Iron Caster also popped at the last round. Boop. Just died. Yeah, I think for Keith, it wasn't too bad because his Lich could regenerate and he could fly around. Yeah, but his Necromancers were forced to not hide behind. Well, imagine a Dwarf Iron Caster. <laughs> <laughs> Speed 4. And uh, he was hanging back to boost his war engines. Roderick, he took a Paladin on a Dragon and he took a pointy wizard's head on it so it became a level 1 wizard and he took it for the purpose of healing because once he's on the opponent's side of the board he'll heal life every round so that was uh, the combo that he came up with which was pretty devastating thankfully my game against him with John as a team game the Phantoms rather in uh, Night Stalkers grounded him on his side of the board so his paladin actually eventually died to this special rule <laughs> because he was stuck on his side of the board the whole game Imperium Plains spells. First one is Celestial Restoration. This is a 36-inch spell. For each hit squad, heal D3 wounds. It is very long range, but it also has indirect. That means you can't cast it on things within 12-inch of yourself. You can heal very far away up to 36-inch, but not nearby stuff. 2 dice for 20 points, 3 dice for 30 points, 4 dice for 40 points, level 1, 2, 3. And remember this sort of blasts into D3 heal. Second spell is Sharp Eye Incantation, 12-inch friendly buff. If a hit is scored, the unit gets plus 1 to its range value for the duration of the turn. This cannot improve it better than 4+. Plus. I remember Johan was using this to boost his uh, Angkor Heavy Mortars. Keith, do you use this in the Empyrean Plane or you only use this in the Finale, the healing spell? Uh, I used the Restoration spell in the Finale and it was Yeah, awesome. it was really good. It was really awesome. Good. I had, I had it on the level 3 Lich. Basically, because of in, uh, indirect fire, right? so I couldn't really heal myself, but I was healing like our, our units from far away, and it was really good. <laughs> Next, uh, let's see the channeling table for this. Empyrean Plane channeling table. Number 1 is Radiance of Life. Number 2 is Thunderous Charge plus 1. Number 3 is Hammered of Measured Force that works on both melee and ranged attacks, always wounding on 4s. Number 4 is Healing D3. Number 5 is Wings of Honey Maze. Additionally, it loses your Wild Charge. Number 6 is Guiding Light. Ranged attacks made by this unit ignores all modifiers when rolling to hit. That's your stealthy, cover, individual, all gone. Also, your moving and firing penalty. This special item is Heavenly Hapsicord for 25 points and Trial 6. The channeling table for this one is not too bad. The item is uh, pretty crappy and Trial. Nobody cares about that. So next, 
Radiance of Life. Uh, I remember the Thunderous one being very interesting because it's crushing strength one, right? As long as you're not hindered. Um, there's something that boosts uh, shooting as well. You have Hammer of Measured Force, but also for ranged attacks. You have healing effects. You have Wings of Honey Maze effect. And the last one, Ignore Hit Modifiers when rolling to hit with ranged attacks. So cover, stealthy, all gone. This plane is very pro-shooting with Guiding Light and the spell earlier, Sharp Eye Incantation, increasing the range value by one. It was crazy good. Crazy good. Do you uh, devastate opponents with your shooting in this uh, plane, Johan? I think I did. I couldn't remember, but I believe my Motas were working so well that plane. Was it this plane that I played five games? I, I can't remember. <laughs> maybe, yeah, uh, maybe. Johan uh, played yeah. a lot of games. In fact, he played Abyssal Dwarfs and Ogres. He played two armies and we counted it as two accounts, you know. Imagine two players playing two separate armies. So that's a lot of games under Johan's belt. <laughs> Uh, moving into the ethereal plane, and that's where everybody starts to get a bit fatigued already. So, so there's some team games here. I think we have pictures of team games. And the ethereal plane. Firstly, the special effect, which is if you're near an objective, you reroll one spell dice. For the spells, ethereal plane spells. First one is called Wither and Perish. It's a 12-inch weakness. On top of that, it blasts these three of damage with no piercing modifiers. So 2 dice for 25 points at level 1, 3 dice for 35 points at level 2. Host Shadow Beast, it's an 18-inch buff that targets only friendly hero that is not a monster or a titan. For each hit scored, the target gains 2 attacks for the rest of the turn. 2 dice for 10 points, 3 dice for 20 points, 4 dice for 30 points at levels 1, 2, and 3. I didn't take any of them. Were any of that interesting to you? I think the Host Shadow Beast is... It's useful for heroes. Hero, hero. Is, yeah, it's a hero, but it's quite a situation because you may, you may not even roll a single hit. Yeah, I remember I took that just for my berserker bully. Did it get anything else? Uh, so I was, I was just taking it for the berserker bully to go into the flanks. So if I cast that, then it will be what for for three dice. It's hopefully six attacks times two double twelve. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. But it didn't. It didn't. Uh, succeed lah, your plan. I think it did once. once. Okay. Ethereal Plane's special artifact is Mind Thirst for 10 points. For the channeling table, number 1 is Stealthy, number 2 is Life Leech plus 2, number 3 is to make an enemy lose their steady aim at... Number 3 is to make the enemy lose their... Number 3 is to make the enemy lose their steady aim and gain the pot shot special rule, which is to half their attacks. Number 4 is Strider. Number 5 is to make an enemy spellcaster subtract 6 inch from the range of the next spell it casts. And number 6 is to make an enemy frozen. One thing to take note is uh, frozen. Things might potentially have a minus 2 threat range because your speed will drop by 1, right? There's things that make shooting bad. One thing that reduces spell range, healthy, gains pot shot and lose steady yeah. aim. Very anti-shooting this plane, so watch out for that uh, shooting armies. You'll feel very disappointed this plane. I think Johan didn't play his episode of this plane. <laughs> <laughs> the story from the ethereal plane's combats. For the finale game, we played on the astral plane. And this is a 4v4 game. But let's talk about the setting first. In the astral plane, it says that you must bring an army of at least 3,000 points or higher. We have 4 players of 1,500 points. So there's no problem there. But take note that at the start of the campaign settings, it also said that at 3,000 points and above, 
you no longer have a cap of how many dice you roll for channeling and you can select more than one result. For our game, although it's 6,000 points, we're supposed to select 5 results but I felt that that was a little bit too much, so I kept it at 4. The astral plane, you have to choose one channeling table. Both of us chose uh, material planes channeling table because the plus one speed, the plus five attacks, the super individual, you know, the duelist against monsters and heroes is just too good. Everybody bring a 1,500 list. One, one of the things about the rules that we came up for team games is that your rules will affect your allies. Inspiring, uh, casting spells like Bane Chant, Rallying, uh, everything, Auras. Because we want the units to intermix. Because if we're going to use in like ally rules, right, where the inspiring doesn't help your allies, then you'll just be playing on your own side of the board. But because we allowed it, I think it kind of intermixed all the units and you also can think of combos. Definitely, there might be some combos that might feel a little bit strong or broken. But anyway, this is Helpy's Rift. Like it's just a narrative, a narrative campaign format. So a little bit broken is fine, I feel. For the astral plane, you are allowed to take all the items and spells from the previous four planes. Your heroes can also equip up to two items each. And of course, our specific campaign, our general already has the effects of two items. And one fear that I did for the final one fear I had for the finale is everyone taking Alchemist Curse because I think it's very strong. Everybody will agree it's very strong. So we limit to all the plane specific spells, we limit to one per side. Of course, your army specific spells like Bastion, you can take multiple times. I'm not gonna go through in detail. Um, this is where it explains all the effects will help each other. We played on a 12 by 4 feet board, so basically two six five four feet boards joined together. We have a very beautiful castle terrain in the in the local store, so Alex, the stoner, say, hey, use this, please use this. So I was like, okay, let me think of how to use it. And then we have these objectives that can be placed uh, anywhere on the map based on the pillage scenario, but uh, not too near the castle because when the castle dies, uh, there will be a small objective placed also. So the consideration of that red zone is so that there will be another objective that appears uh, out of 12 inches out of the rest of the objectives. And then uh, I use the, what's this called? The ethereal plane, the, the rule, dark energy, where basically you get one extra or re-roll one spellcasting die when you're near the objective. The castle, how does it work? Everybody can deal damage to it on their round. Uh, there's a cap though, because every damage you deal is worth VP. So at the end, you also roll to destroy its nerf. And so the castle is dash 50, right? Dash 50 and defense 7. So you need crushing 2 to at least do uh, better damage rolls. And then our enemy side, Johan and Keith's side, they, they came up with this wonderful idea to use Hammer of Measured Force yes. <laughs> on Should 2 hordes. <laughs> so kudos to them. They had 2 hordes each holding Hammer of Measured Force to, to wound the castle on 4+. plus. As I was coming up with the rules for this, I was very afraid like, oh, how do I balance it so that both sides has an equal chance of blowing up the castle? Because it's a little bit hard to do that. So I make it take random damage so it'll be a bit random. Secondly, let's, let's just make that when the castle is dead, it's only worth very little VP. So it doesn't matter as much who destroyed the castle. It's only worth two extra VPs for killing off the castle. There it is. And here it is. That's the rules.
when it's dead, it will be replaced with this unstable vortex. Is the what, what's the GW model called? Bailwind vortex. Bailwind vortex. And then you randomly scatter a template that will do a lot of damage, but in the end, I think it didn't hit much stuff. <laughs> so that randomness uh, really doesn't is already too a little bit too random. Every side gets a watchtower model that's a height. It's a height six war engine. So actually, height six is pretty good because it uh, ignores a lot of uh, unit covers. This is how big it is. I'm just gonna skip past that. One thing I thought was pretty cool is that we were scoring points for our alliance as we played games, right? So I was thinking what to do with the points. And rather than just giving the side with more points an advantage and then the losing side with less points, no, nothing at all, we converted the points into currency to purchase stuff for the game, right? So of course, we come up with a formula. I came up with a formula such that, you know, the winning side will not be too much higher than the losing side, but each has a comfortable amount to spend on. Okay, firstly, there are rerolls that you can spend on, which is pretty funny. And just to make things fun for the finale, I make that, you know, if you want to use any of these effects, you have to do certain actions to do it. Um, there's more over here. I have videos of uh, to show later on. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> which reminds me, I need to turn on the sound. <laughs> and we also included Living Legends, that especially from the factions that's not in our campaign so that they can purchase these, these living legends. And one of them is actually the general of one of our players who can't make it to the finale. So that's one for Gorat's side and one for Ilios' side. We also feature the Spirit of Valendor, which is from the second edition uh, supplement. And for Ilios' side, the Motobris. This is the board from both sides uh, upon deployment. That's how awesome it is. We'll walk down the board. And I printed the height of every single uh, terrain piece to put on the piece of terrain so that we will have no dispute over how tall it is or no gotchas regarding, oh, I forgot it's so tall. <laughs> okay. You can look at all those sexy legs. <laughs> Game is halfway through, top of three. Smash. Smash. This part of the board is particularly colorful. Got the red and the blue and the greens and the blacks. So he rewrote a uh, nerf check and got the nerf he required to route. Go! Stand back! Oh. Let me show you how it's done! Oh. Oh. Well, I uh, I rewrote and wrote a one. <laughs> so that was that was a negative example. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Tussle is destroyed. <laughs> that was fast! Violence! <laughs> uh, Thanks to Hammer, the measure force. Yeah, these are some of the recap stuff. Epic moments. Yeah, the musical brought a lot. 36 <laughs> attacks.
the sea otters were the MVP. Yeah, the otters dealt two damage to the tyrants, and then with the kraken <laughs> charging, the sea otters were what tidal swarms, right? Yeah, tidal swarms. Uh, Yes, the tidal swarm, they were hindered, so they were hitting on sixes, but no matter. Uh, but over on the other half of the board, because the castle is so huge in the middle of the board, right? It kind of splits the table into two six by fours. Each, uh, there are four players, 4v4, right? So each half of the board, two players were fighting. So even though my red kin models might be on the other side of the board, I just say, hey, God, you just control it. Uh, you focus on that side of the board, and we focus on this side of the board. No matter whose units they were, you just control it. Revenants. 30 damage. He has the level 3 uh, Celestial Restoration. We bought a Idol of Shobik for the Iron Resolve Aura. And he has uh, one side of his uh, Revenants against the castle. So he couldn't be flank charged from that side. How did it happen? Uh, because that was not my side of the board. You just kept charging and he just kept healing, right? Yeah, it was a grind that we, we were never going to win. Because they had Phoenix, they had Lichy Lich. They had too much healing. On their, on their end of the board. Yeah, and then because the one end is against the castle, so there's a limitation of how many units you can multi-charge in as well. That flank of our line never collapsed. We lost the other flank. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Gart, we were in Gorat, and Johan and Keefs were in uh, Ilios, and Gorat, we took a combined arms approach. We have a little bit of shooting while I think Ilios' mm. side was all melee. Very, yep. very little shooting. Close-up picture. That's the Revenant that uh, my shock troops charge into it. And because it's the same base size, so nothing else can charge it. So it just healed all of its wounds back uh, gradually throughout the entire game. So this guy is the idol of Shobik. My Tangle is over here as well. We eventually lost that side for Korat. So some of the recap pictures. One mistake we did was that the deployment took too long. Right. <laughs> We were deploying one unit at a time, and then we realized, hey, it's taking too long. Let's deploy three units at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because there's so many drops. I think there's uh, almost uh, 40 drops. Yeah, I think we took about one hour to deploy. So out of the four hours, one hour was probably just, just deployment. Deploy. So our advice would be to deploy three at a time, playing a much higher points game. Or, you, or if you can have a screen in the middle, that would be quite interesting also. But it's quite hard to do. In that finale, Gorat won in the end. We actually, Gorat was winning one half of the board while Ilios was winning the other half of the board. The critical point to our success was that for Gorat, we had one veteran player on each half of the board while both Keith and Roderick, you are focusing on one half. So you all won that side very hard. Yeah. So I think that was the, the key. So these were the epilogue slides. Basically, help his wrist brought them to the different plane. And finally, to... GW's Fantasy's Old World, where the end time was happening, and they managed to take the rift back to Panetor before the world collapsed in its end times. Yeah, so some things to consider for future is, I think, the leveling up mechanic. I think it would be best if the person who lost just get more experience points straight up. Mm. Because, it, you know, it's snowball effect, right? If the winner gets more perks, the winner will win harder in the next game. Yeah. And it will just keep snowballing. So... The winner already has the satisfaction of winning. So let the loser feel something, level up, you know, get more XP. So I think that would be a better approach going forward. Just the loser just gets more XP. Campaign duration, I'll recommend six weeks. Ten weeks is too long. Four weeks sometimes is too short. You know, by the time people get into the feel, the momentum of the campaign, already halfway through already. So six weeks, I think would be perfect. The two-team format has one big problem because if I'm on one side, I can only play against half the players in the campaign because half of them are my teammates, only the other half are my enemies. So that, that is one big problem if you were to run this kind of format. 
In fact, we had to keep jumping players back and forth between alliances because like during this season, suddenly this player is uh, very busy and he can't get any games in. And then suddenly the opponents has uh, no players available. So we kept swapping players from alliance to alliance to make sure that, you know, uh, every two weeks there are players that are actively playing. So I remember Gat was bounced to Elios and back to Gorat. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. Johan, were you bounced back and forth? Oh, I was the one who tanked five games in a week. For <laughs> <Elios>. <laughs> that week, Elios, a lot of players were unavailable and then Johan played five games. Uh, then after that, we brought uh, Roderick over. There was a time that Gat was not able to play games as well. So we swapped uh, Gat back and then we put Roderick over. Roderick is one of our strong players in our local scene. We also try to keep it balanced. Lah. Try to have an equal amount of veteran players and newer players to help carry the newer players. We also had one plane where teammates could actually... You could, you could play against someone on your own team. Yeah. Remember? That was fun. Yeah, we had that. Friendly matches and you gain some experience points from it. But it still doesn't feel... I think people are still not as excited as uh, fighting an opponent, lah, right? Yeah, we, we called it like a... Okay, so let's go around the table and pen down some of your thoughts of the campaign. What went well, what could have uh, gone better? Yeah, I think overall it was uh, quite well run, well organized. And the interest was very good. I think overall we played about 50 games of Kings of War in total, something like that, 40 over games, which is quite amazing for our community, which is not very big. We had about, I think up to 8 players on each side, but probably only 5 or 6 Per side were pretty active and it was uh, quite nice to have the mega battle at the end it was nice uh, it's not often that you have big battles between two armies the leveling we realized people could just farm experience points and we had to learn as we go along like what what happens if you, you change the army if you have another general you reset those kind of things we had to as you go along we actually found the solutions for and also, smaller point games can be a bit unbalanced. Like we do, we did have players who were discouraged when they lost smaller point games. So smaller point games can swing faster than let's say two thousand point games. Especially one thousand point games can be quite fast. Yeah. Your list might not have the solution to the yeah. problem presented to you. Yeah. So yeah. so gotta be careful guys. of that. That is something that we can try to balance more. But I think overall it was quite fun. I think kudos to the. RC and Mantic for coming to help this riff. I think it it makes the things of war more fun, more random. So that that is one of the criticisms of Kings of War, the lack of flavor and randomness. So the leveling up really helps the flavor wise. We all give our generals names, our bodyguard names. I mean there's nothing for stopping us from doing that for our normal games. If yeah, and the random power up that you get from leveling up also kind of balance it in a way that you don't you don't get to build a super OP hero, but the effect you get is randomized. Yeah, so, it's 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 random. You, you may get like if you get a caster like Keef, if you get a caster, yeah, you get like plus one attack. You know, like who cares about plus one attack? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that table is like pretty useless to me. <laughs> yeah, I remember my warlock got plus two attacks in the end. Yeah, we also <laughs> had effects to reroll them, la, so I, you can try to reroll them for plus one nerf, at least that's more useful. Yeah, I think that, that was funny. Even when uh, we were rolling it, we were actually recording it on video and sharing it with the group, so that, that was one of the fun parts of the campaign, I remember. So I think overall, was a uh, job well done by Paige, and I chipped in here and there. Give forward towards the next one. The next one is a league, it's a bit different. 
So we're running a, like a very classic league. Everyone on their own, they play mm. and they qualify. But we split into veteran and young blood category. Young blood is a carryover yeah. of the terminology from our Warhammer community, our fantasy community. So I just kept the name. Yeah, so because we, we, we do have some young bloods who are not young anymore. They're probably old bloods by now. <laughs> but they are, some of them are new to Kings of War. So we have young bloods and uh, veterans. Uh. No, we don't want to use newbie. Newbie can be a bit condescending. So yeah. But that's the name of my channel. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pass it to Johan, my neighbor. <laughs> Literally neighbors. They're like yeah. five minutes away where we stay. I think the healthy script is really, really fun. Like Paige, I love Blood Bowl. I love the leveling up mechanics. And what he took from Blood Bowl really, really helps with the healthy script. The leveling up mechanic, uh, it's like it's like building up your bodyguard and your general. It's, it's really fun. It, it gives you something to look forward to, like in Blood Bowl. So after every match you play, you want to level up your players, something to look forward to. So it's a very, very good mechanic. If anybody is looking for a fun mechanic to, to include in their campaign, this is one really, really good one you could consider. The randomness in the, in the campaign, the overpowerness, uh, not really overpowered, but the powers that the campaign gives you is also fun. I remember pitch shock troopers going up to 24, 26, or is it 25, 27 nerf value? Plus and two nerfs, so with the uh, rallying is uh, 24, 26, if I'm not wrong, with the shock troops. <laughs> Almost impossible to remove from the table with his healing, with his uh, drain life from his, what's that called, blue mother. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost impossible to remove, pour a lot into it. But then it's it's, it's a narrative campaign, it's fun. Uh, as long as you don't take it too seriously, you just have fun playing with the game. I think it's, it's, it's really awesome. And I think Wargaming is all about the interactiveness with opponents the people you play with rather than the actual win or loss result itself. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the campaign. Kudos to General Guard and Paige, especially Paige who wrote up the storyline and who I mean you just have to read it. It was so well done. Look at look at the pages he came up with. So you just have to read it. Even if you have no interest in it, yeah. Kudos to Paige. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Johan is uh, one of the newer players in the scene. I mean at the point of Helpy's Rift is one he's one year into Kings of War, lah, right? Because it's he started when Kings of War uh, third edition dropped. So if which was winter of twenty nineteen. Kudos to you, Paige, and to Glad as well. I think you all did a great job and a lot of fun. Uh, I would have liked to play more games than I did, but uh, uh it is what it is, you know. Now with this pandemic that we're in and all. Uh, some feedback, which is, I think, something that is quite common to any campaign, uh, no matter what game system it is. You have to take into account who ends of the spectrum. I think, and, and it was kind of brought up as well, when you have newer players, and they kind of lose their first couple of games, and then they start to feel demoralized, and they end up dropping out of the campaign entirely, or just being there, but not actually there. I think this is a, uh, quite a big problem that uh, happens in many campaigns, and which actually kind of ruins the whole balance of the campaign, especially when you have teams, like two teams in the case of Gorat and Elias. And it's not, it's, there's no easy solution. It's not an easy thing to find a way to encourage these players to remain in the campaign. I think that's one thing that we may have to kind of consider for the next one that we do. And on the flip side, uh, when you have the very strong players, uh, the very strong players who tend to dominate, expect them more games, when they kind of challenge people or they ask, is anyone free for a game? And you, you see kind of there's a hesitation for some people to kind of accept the challenge. In the end, it also means that these strong players also don't play as many games as they 
go to. You know, if, if I could leave you with one point, it would be try and figure out how to balance uh, these two ends of the spectrum and to make it an experience like that where uh, all the players can kind of stick to it until the end. Thanks for that, Keith. And yeah, that's definitely one thing that we learned. As, so one of the things that I would do, especially going forward, of course, among other things would be that the leveling system, right? That let the loser gain more. So at least the loser gets to power up into it. Uh, power up for the next game. One thing I remember from the what, what I wanted to say for Johan is that yeah, our units get stronger and stronger, right? But in Kings of War, it's so, so what makes it a beautiful system is that when you flank charge, it's double the attack. So even a 24-26 shock troop horde is not going to survive a flank charge from a siege breaker. So it's still going to die. So that's the beauty of Kings of War. No matter how powerful your, your unit is, it will still die to a flank charge from hammers. You won't feel that, wow, this is totally unkillable. We don't have that, right? God, I think you have to go back to work, is it? If you have to, you can uh, drop out at this point. Blink once, or yes, blink twice for no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I see somebody walking around you. No, no, there's no one behind me. I'm the, it's the, it's the Singapore skyline behind me, actually. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That's pretty nice. I see you looking sideways. I thought somebody came in. No, there, there was someone who wanted to come into, into my room. I, I'm like, no, I'm on uh, official business. Yeah. Okay, okay. Can, can, can. <laughs> right now, we're going, we're, we're running our local league, right? And we're split into veterans and young blood. So we're trying something new. If I were to do some sort of a team format in future, one thing I want to try is to have a master and padawan format. So you pair one veteran and one newbie. A, a team will be either two person or maybe three person. Uh, if there's a lot of newbies, maybe two newbies to one veteran. Or if there's a lot of veterans, then it's the other way around. But break, basically break into small teams. How the finale will be run will be another question. Uh, because you probably have six teams or eight teams, right? So how are we going to do the finale? But maybe that pairing system might work. Because firstly, you still have somebody to buddy with. You still have most of the players to fight against rather than only half the available players. So that's uh, one thing that I'm thinking of. Any ideas you guys might have you want to chip in here? Have you ever considered using the War Machine and Hots double list format for Kings of War? Like you prepare two lists, then you decide what you want to drop on, on the spot. I think that was a pretty good format for War Machine and Hots. I like that format also because then you don't feel like your list... might be the uh, all-rounder list all the time. Say that. So Kings of War isn't as bad, but most people like to gravitate towards an all-rounder list, right? Because you want to be able to take all comers, right? You want to be able to take uh, all sorts of lists. I think the two-list format is quite interesting. So one hurdle for Kings of War is because you have a lot of models to bring. So if you want to bring two lists or models, it will be very difficult. But uh, I have thought about this on and off before. I think one way to we can do it is that, for example, in a 2,000-point game, you can bring two lists, but perhaps uh, 1,500 points must be the same. So your two lists is 75% similar. So you can have that last 500 points to tweak around to so that you have two variations of the list. And depending on which two your opponent brings, then you say, I, I think this variation might work better. So I think that would work. Firstly, because 75% of your list is the same. So your model, your box, right, will be the same. You will just be bringing a little bit more models rather than two entire armies in your backpack. That's one idea I have. Maybe it's 1,005, maybe it's 1,002. I don't know. I don't know what's the exact number, but that's the rough idea behind it. Yeah, I would love to do that. Maybe we can experiment with the community 
Kings of War community, uh, even those people listening right now, maybe you can experiment with this format. Keith, anything to add? I think I, I raised most of the points. I'll leave it in your good hands because event planning and organizing leagues and campaigns has kind of been a living thing. It can't be static. There will definitely be some times that you can't predict all the ways people will react. Mm. You have to just change it on the fly. I'm sure you'll do a, a great job. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Any advice to people who are doing events, starting campaigns, Kings of War, leagues, so on and so forth? Well, first of all, I think the length of the campaign is really important. From experience, I think anything more than six weeks tends to get a bit deep. People start to fall off by about the last week or two. Now, I've done longer campaigns and I don't recommend it. If you keep it to six weeks, pretty good. One thing which I kind of have before is you have the challenge system. Challenge system. But on the other hand, you know, you don't want a situation where people are not having games because they're being avoided, you know, or who kind of want to pick and choose who, who they play against. So these are the challenges that you have to, to work around. And I think it has to be tailored to fit your particular play group. Because some play groups will be much more narrative, more willing to, you know, take losses, play on, no matter the result. You know, I think here, here sometimes we tend to be a bit competitive. I don't know, maybe it's Asian culture. <laughs> I think but so yeah. too. <laughs> it does mean that when people start to lose, they kind of demotivated and drop out. Yeah. Uh, one thing I just did to our local league that we're running right now is that uh, winners already get the glory of winning. Let me shift the price towards a lucky draw, a raffle, uh, so to speak, so that even those who are not uh, in the running to win can also look forward to something at the end of the league that they might maybe able to win the lucky draw. So that's something new I'm also trying. Something that I came to the realization of. Just like winners, yeah, they can get prize money, but they already got so much glory and accomplished sense of accomplishment from winning. So that's uh, something that I'm uh, also trying to think of and work towards, you know, trying to think from all players' point of view. You know, while having prize money, store credit, or store vouchers is great, but one very simple kind of prize, which I think everyone kind of likes is trophies or swag, something that you can display, you know, because while, while prize money is great, and yeah, we all know it, it gets floated back into the hobby like a fish cycle, you, know, you can't display prize money. And you can't display vouchers. When you get a trophy, a statue, or some nicely painted model, you know, like it's something that you can put on the shelf. And you know, I, I personally have like a, I have a shelf that I put all my trophies on. It makes me feel happy. I think that's one consideration. I'm not sure how the rest of you think, but uh, I would rather receive flag than as many. That's a good point. Yeah. And when you look back at your trophies, you will remember the times, right? Oh, yeah, I piloted this uh, super broken list. Not super <laughs> broken. Maybe some games, but <laughs> okay. Well, I piloted this strong strong list uh, brought me to victory. I think you, when you look at the medals, you will reminisce of your wins. Yeah, so for this uh, league, we are actually giving away the Jesse Conwell's Ogre Warlock and also uh, a lot of phosphate. So one of our players, he is also pretty new, but he's, he's, he's a very good painter. So he has uh, KJ. He has volunteered to actually paint these two models to be some of the prizes. Yeah, and we'll mount it on a plinth and then it will become a trophy. So the, the yeah. plinth, the trophy itself has the model, whether it's the Jesse Ogre Warlock or the Frostfang Rider and guess what the plin will be 40 and 50 mm respectively so you can actually play on the table yeah so <laughs> that's, as you, as that's you the play, idea you can, you, you can flex <laughs> your, your victory yeah I mean the Ogre Warlock I, I, told, I told KJ to paint it with red skin and whatever and then I, I say it's going to be for me and he was saying <laughs> what? and then I look at the I look at the, I look at the box and Look, it's red skin. It's meant for me, not my ogre side. <laughs> Later, as I showcase my models. <laughs> <laughs> awesome I think that uh, is a good segue to let's showcase some of our player models uh, let's start with Johan one and a half years into Kings of War 
you do have quite an impressive collection for being yes, such a he is very very productive and uh, this this is also a, a nice segue for me to leave because I don't have much to contribute in the expect yeah, yeah uh, so. we are filming this in a day and God has to get back to work so thanks God for joining in the three of us will continue okay have fun guys see you bye bye see you, see you. Uh, Johan do go, go ahead and share your screen so this is the full spectrum of my older army some of it one of the big one is commission painted. The rest I paint myself. About two thousand five hundred points to six hundred points, I would say around there. These are my siege breakers. Uh, siege breakers models weren't out when I was I started playing uh, ogres, and ogres are my first army in Kings of War. So I looked around. I was think I was finding a, a model for siege breaker, and this came up. So it was three D printed. I think they really fit. Siege breaker really well with the big shield and the spikes on the shield. So yeah, I think uh quite a few ogre players uh use this use this uh three mm-hmm. D file. So maybe you can send me a link so that I can put it in the description. People can find this file if they're interested in it as well. Fire dreadnought from DMD, I think. Okay. Yeah. So that's the name. So this is the back view of my standard bearer ogre standard bearer. So he earned this shield when he had a. Five round combat with a dwarf lord, so he actually survived the combat with the dwarf lord for five rounds, and so he earned the <laughs> This is a space wolf, the, the the dreadnought shield, I think. So it was KJ's dwarfs, is it? Uh no, it was guards. <laughs> so he survived five rounds of combat with a dwarf lord, yeah, and that's why you gave him uh this shield. Uh, you added in after the model was done after yeah. that game, basically. These are my boomers. Uh, it's one of the first unit that I painted. Because boomers are so good in ogres, right? They are literally the best of both worlds. They are mm. just one, crush one. They fight well as, as they shoot well. I remember these guys taking out pages Forsaken in one, in <laughs> two shootings, I think. <laughs> uh, the, the Forsaken Knights, the Flying Knights. Yes, the Flying Knights. <sighs> <laughs> and uh, I like that blue uh, highlight on the armor. You don't do it for all the models. Yeah, no, no. Uh, so I was testing I was testing the contrast on uh silver, black buffer. So this is one of the results I have. Other than this unit and another another standard barrel which you see far back behind. Mm. So these are the only units with the blue blue tinted uh shoulder plates. Because I was just testing out the contrast. Do you like thing. it? Uh I like it, but it's kind of weird to have only the shoulder plates and the the oh. guard. So I, I go I went away with it. Yeah. Okay. So that's my thought. I have my berserkers. These berserkers I keep bashed with the iron jaw brutes weapons. You will recognize these weapons if you have iron jaw brutes. That's I right. have some leftover bits from Warcry, so I use them for berserkers. The reason I didn't use magic berserkers is because they are metal. I hate metal models. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people in Singapore don't really like metal models. Yeah. So I tried to avoid metal models and I have a lot of older bodies left over from the Mega Unbox and I was looking around to see where I can get arms and weapons that look that, that can duplicate uh berserkers and voila the brutes really fit well. Very uh, cool so, the that claw weapon. And uh, for so those who don't know I those, yeah. so there's those are the G Games Workshop, the super armored orc models. Correct. So they have dual weapons and some two-handed weapons, which I cut up some of them. I have a total of four regiments of berserkers. My 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 pictures are quite messed up, so uh that's why they are not in order. I'm no worries, guys, for that. So these are my two units of siege breakers, which should have showcased earlier. 
and my standard bearers. On the flag on the left one, it actually say defense five plus because my god, defense five plus on these guys are awesome. <laughs> they are literally the the, the chef that I use for ogres. Yeah, so with with the post where you look where you look at him and say, hey, come on, give me all you got. Oh my god, this is actually the Gakamak mod, uh, Gokaga model, you know, the one that says come at me. Yeah, but it, it comes with the mega army box, so I used yeah. him for the. Yeah, the, the thing about the Grokagamok model is it doesn't look very different from a normal ogre. Correct. So I, I have another, I, I don't remember if I took a picture, but if you look way back beside the giant, giant. Yeah, there is a 3D printed model back there which, which is supposed to be my Grokagamok. Yeah. So it's right. a 3D printed model. So I have two standard bearers. I'm thinking whether I should go for another one, but at the moment, I think two is sufficient for me in this army. Yeah, so this is this is a commission painted giant commission to KJ who is painting our prizes. He's a really, really good painter. He's been joining competitions online, I think. And recently wow. he got second in one of them. Amazing. So this is a, a very expensive commission job I paid <laughs> for. <laughs> Third of my Berserker regiment. I particularly love the model on the left side because of the knife on his back. It's really awesome, I think. And he has a dagger on his right hand, so is kind of concealed so, and the last of the regiment so i have four regiments which can be combined into a hot if i need to so that's why i, I played them in regiment and i love the circle oldest regiment as tick chat dash 15 is too good I have to say the ogre faction is a very well balanced internally. Like every unit seems to have its uses. Yeah, except we are almost all fifteen seventeen from the get go. This is the matrix model which I I used as a warlock or a nomagarok. I intended to do a lightning ball thing in front of his sword, which I don't think it turned out well. But I just I just went with it. So this is to signify that he's a warlock instead of. Melee character, something like that. Ogre's Lightning Boat are quite awesome as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is my matriarch. Going forward, he will be a warlock because the Jesse's warlock is in store and I'm getting it painted up right now. And he will be by Noma Garok. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's all my pictures. Let's go back to okay. If you look at the model right next to the giant, that will be by Goku uh, Gamok if I ever get to play him. Yeah. Yeah, and you have your that, goblin scouts, so you didn't take individual pictures. Oh yes, I forgot. Sorry, because <laughs> <laughs> my son was bothering me that day when I was taking pictures for this artist. So um, let's see if I can zoom uh, in. Again. You you proxy the goblin uh, rebels or right, red goblin, which was very effective against me. Yes, uh, I I am painting them up one hot twenty models, which I I don't really have the motivation to do it, but I'm running it through. <laughs> Yes, so that's... let's hope that they will come up soon. Uh, it will be it will be a very very bad thing job. Just contrast and that's it. So do, these are my my scouts. Uh, I love them as check fast speed ten. They are just there to block somebody if you need to, and then the tick check can move up, which is my vertical overs. Yeah. So that's my the, my army, and I'll hand it over to Keith to showcase his now. Goblin Scouts, I think they are defense 4 and uh, their nerf is not too bad, right? Like 10, 12, or 11, 13. One for oh no, the, the Scouts, Goblin Scouts, the mounted ones. The mounted one, they are 9, 11. 9, 11. But they are defense 4, right? Yes, correct. Defense 4. 
So they're not as easy to take off than like let's say uh gargoyles or gurpenters. All right, mm-hmm. Keith, take it away. You can share your screen once your pictures are ready. Hey, well, um, I have two armies to showcase. I have my uh, undead, which is my first army, and uh, Empire of Dust. I think I'll showcase Empire of Dust first because it's the most recent army I painted. You guys who want to see this, it's pretty impressive. And because uh, I told Keith to get ready to showcase his models, he put his light box together. If not, he would be still sitting around, not fixed up, right? That's right. Most of them are Tomb King models. So yeah, uh, for this uh, Empire of Death Army, I, I went with uh, the Tomb King's range, uh, which I, you know, I've had. I've been collecting it for a long time, but I just never got up to it. And uh, for those one or two models that I couldn't find something that was in the Tomb King's range, I kind of used the new... Uh, Osiak Bone Reaper range, which is from uh, Warhammer Age of Sigma. So yeah. uh, here, yeah, here we actually have my Revenant Cavalry. I kind of actually painted High Army with contrast. Most of my painting time actually goes into painting Warhammer models. So for Kings of War, I basically wanted something that's really fast to do. Yeah, I just breezed through it with contrast, and because it's mostly bone, so I think it's really easy to do and a pretty good effect as well. And I kind of went with like a yellow to on the armor and weapons to represent like. Um, copper or like brass, bronze. So as you can see, I, I kind of uh, had these uh, like obelisks and columns uh, really printed or I bought them and I'm using them as a decoration for the base. You know, but they actually serve a, a dual purpose. My my units are all, I, I glued magnets below them. When I stick them to the tray, it can be pretty hard to remove and I don't want to yank them out by grabbing on the models. So I actually pull them out by holding on to these uh, obelisks and columns. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So things to let you hold on to easily. Yes, yeah. So that was the idea that, you know, when I, when I thought up through the army, I said, okay, I need something to kind of grab onto monuments, ruined statues that I used to hold. <laughs> is that 3D printed or is that um, bought? Uh, no, that's bought, yeah. It's actually from uh, Cyborg. Cyborg. You know, the scarabs meant to be used as a base for like some bow or whatever. But yeah, mm. I, I, thought, I thought it would look pretty good as a column. Right, very nice. I kind of went a bit uh, crazy with the chariots. So I have actually three legions worth now for you. Oh, <laughs> wow. I'm trying to make them work in the list. We shall see. Pharaoh on chariot. I should have two of them. The Pharaoh model is nice. This yeah, is nice too. Yeah, that's uh this is actually the uh Setra, the imperishable model. It's uh, the name Tomb King character. Right. I wasn't very into the fluff at that time, but yeah, these are all the character models, right, that you're putting on the chariots. Pretty much, yeah. Pharaoh on foot. Very pretty this model. Kalida, is it? Yeah, Kalida. Like one of my cursed high priests. So as you can see, the contrast, the, the yellows and the browns, you know, they work really well. And they kind of give this kind of a very ancient, like ancient Egypt kind of feel to the model. So I, I think yeah, how it do you, together very well. How do you do the blade with the yellow and the browns? Uh, actually, it's just one color. It's the Nasdaq yellow. Uh, but the key is to make sure that it pulls in the right places. Then you get a kind of natural, strong highlight on the edge. Nice. Do you wet blend it at all? The yellow, no, the no. brown goes... Okay, no bad blending at all. It's just yeah, it's just one coat and make sure that it's a smooth coat. And that's all. You know, if uh, but if you want, you can also like kind of go back, uh, just paint an extra layer, and that will actually heighten back as well. So you can do that as well. Nice, nice. So this is my other cursed high priest, especially the scarab prints from Two Kings. So yeah, I, I really love this one because it's just it's so cool. It looks like, like the sea of flowing scarabs, high priest on your horse. I'm using it as a revenant champion army standard barrier on horse and on foot. Mummies, Tomb King's Tomb Guard. Mummies again, second unit. 
the slightly newer models, skeleton spearmen, forming a shield wall and trying to, to protect like some ruined temple or some some kind of monument. Spearmen, uh, enslaved guardian archers. Yeah, I really love these guys. They're really cool. Pretty effective. Pretty versatile. And my second unit. You know what? What I love about them is that they just throw out so many charts. And then if you do try and charge them, they can still kind of fight back and kill some things. They are almost like the older boomers, right? Uh, are they quad shots? I think, I believe so, yes. They're not really meant to move forward. Usually, if you want to move them, you search. Yeah, so if you search, you don't suffer the penalty, right? When you yes, shoot. yeah, that's right. First unit of Enslaved Guardians, second unit. And uh, the third unit, for something different, I kind of use these uh, old Tomb Scorpions. Mm. Because they, yeah, they work pretty well as Enslaved Guardians as well. I love these models. They look so nice. <laughs> yeah, and I had a I had a hard time trying to fit them onto the base, so I, I realized that I have, we have one guy kind of Race. climbing on top, climbing on top one of the monuments. In GW, they're supposed to be on what fifty by fifty, is it? I think these are on sixty mm now. But well, not before they were sent to Legends. They're no longer right. legal for for tournament play or anything now. Oh man, yeah, and that's my bone giant. It's a very classic model, right? Yes, yes. It's also one of the two kings range. Skeleton archer horde. Wow, you freehanded the. The inscriptions, not yeah, the banner. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the banner was a bit plain, so I kind of wanted to do something interesting. So I tried to do some kind of ruins or hieroglyphics. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm not really good at freehand. I think that's my big point of painting. Probably the best I can do. <laughs> uh, do you have any reference for the glyphs? Not really. I just kind of went with my, my, what I felt was on, on the spot. I just drew it. Skeleton did I crossbows. There are no crossbow men in this page, so I figured Balefire Brazilians. Mm. And that kind of counts for the missing one. The, the pot shot rule also because they stand still and like the arrows of fire. So I think it worked out pretty well in the end. Swarms. These are scavengers. This is my monolith. Rings uh, and then worm. Uh, it's actually the two kings. Uh, I really like this model. Yeah. I, it took me ages to paint all the, you know, the, the, the dags. <laughs> the little details. Yellow purple, yeah, the yellow purple dags. Because there's so many of them. One model it took me ages to paint them all. Oh, the triangles, huh? Yeah, the triangles. Oh, we're going to into the Ossiak Bone Reaper range. Yeah, actually, this is actually one of the uh, endless spells from uh, Warhammer Age of Sigma. So it's not Ossiak, but uh, it's actually a spell. And oh. uh, yeah, I'm using it as a, a preface. So I kind of felt that, yeah, I need something kind of... I want I want something that was uh, impressive and large, and not like a giant statue or something like that. So I went... Cool, very is, creative. This is awesome, man. This is awesome. <laughs> Thanks. I know it's I like this model, so it looks very impressive. Well, unfortunately, because it's only 50mm base, I couldn't put an entourage on it, but I had to settle for this. Yeah, it comes with an entourage, right? Yeah, he actually has a whole he's a base where he's a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. Sebek Ray. Kind of souls there. Basically, for my undead, it was my first Kings of War army. Really huge. I had like every, every unit in the list and multiples of them sometimes. When I kind of conceived of, of the paint scheme, I wanted something that was really fast to paint so I could paint up the army really quickly, but yet, yet still look kind of cool on the table. So I kind of devised a moon, moonlit scheme with like OSL, like source lighting. So it's kind of a, like a bit of a, a noir kind of look, uh, where I have this black and white and then the only color actually comes from White Sauce, right, my Revenant Cavalry, two units of them. So it's actually really simple. I'm using uh, a little fluorescent paint. You know, after I put the walls down, I kind of use the paint to represent the, the glow of the White Sauce. Do you dry brush it on for, for the glowing, like the cloth? Well, you can't really dry brush it because the texture of this uh, fluorescent paint is a bit, bit like a gel. But, okay. uh, you can sort of dry brush it a little bit. But it's more of just don't overload the brush. It's just slowly brush it across. Sometimes you may need to add a little bit of water to kind of 
smoother the effect. Mm. Yeah, but overall, it works really great over a black and white. Very striking. So we will have These are Rune Wars, right? Yeah, these are actually Rune Wars models. Uh, I mean, the, you know, after the range was uh, phased out, it was pretty cheap to get all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Second unit of uh, Soul Reaver, Warhammer Blood Knights, and uh, oh. the, the Manfred from Castine model. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. See it now. First Pharaoh. And uh, I think these are from Whisk Kids. So these are my Bulgars, my Lich King. The Celestial so, Restoration General. Yes, this guy. Two <laughs> <laughs> Lich. Yeah. More Lich Kings. But yeah. Basically, the, the models are like, pretty far out there from all over the place. But they're all very nice. I guess you like the models. That's why you buy them, right? Yeah, pretty much. And for those who don't know, uh, uh, Keith has a nickname of uh, Vampire Lord. Or what, what's it called? Uh? A zombie Boy. <laughs> zombie Lord. Zombie <laughs> he, boy. Likes all the, he likes all the undead stuff. So I think some of them, you bought them before you even got into Kings of War, right? You just like the models. Yeah. And buy I, them. I mean, I've, I've had them some of these things like my, my Warhammer Fantasy Days. Like, can this my Necromancers? Yeah. One more of them. Guy. Necromancer also? Yeah, Necromancers. Uh, this is my mounted necromancer. Mounted. Get cost more necromancers, of course. You can never have enough necromancers, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is my uh, one of my revenue kings. I have two revenue kings on foot. My mounted revenue king. Uh, one more. Oh, I, I I love this model. Oh, he's so nice. Yeah. Let's see. He's he's riding like this up, upside down horse and he's like floating. Oh my god! It's an upside down horse. Yeah. <laughs> He's holding the two front legs. Yeah, it's pretty cute. What's it again? Mountain Necromancer? No, no, it's a Revenant King. Revenant King. Revenant King on uh, the wing flying worm. I see you attached the wing, the mini, the little wings today. <laughs> yes. So I give him very tiny little wings, which uh, I think kind of felt cute on the on the very fat worm. <laughs> it's not gonna fly, man. <laughs> King on uh, wing worm. This is my uh, Revenant on Barrowing worm. That's a purple yeah, yeah. one from D and D. Yeah, that's the D and D purple one. Army standard barrier on horse, and uh, I've one on foot as well. The vampire lord on horse. One more vampire lord on horse. And yeah, this is one of my uh, my my funny models. It's actually it's a zombie whale. Actually, I'm using it as my zombie dragon. It's very nice, uh, zombie whale. Not every day you get to see a zombie whale. Where is this model from? Uh, it's actually from this from a company called Warplock. Pictures and the range, I believe it's called Arc, Arc World. I think I backed it on Kickstarter. Very nice. Uh, I mean, it's very cool, right? Having a zombie uh, whale and it's floating in the air. Yeah, so it's the other side of it. And the models on top, the vampire ladies, are they from somewhere else? Yeah, those are from the the uh, GW, the common throne. common throne. Right, the ladies that's on the throne. So it's, it's a flying whale, so yeah. Vampire Lord on foot and, and on Pegasus. So this is the horde of ghouls I have. Mantic, right? Uh, mostly Mantic, except the ones in the back row here. Mummy. Uh, it's mostly Mantic, except uh, this guy in front, Chaplin. One more regiment of mummies. Uh, it's all Mantic here. Yeah? I've never seen the uh, Mantic mummies up close. So actually, they look pretty nice. Huh? They look, oh, they pretty, look cool. pretty nice. Maybe it's because of the paint job. <laughs> they, are ma- like they, are, they look like mummified heroes because of the shield and uh, sword, right? And cloaks also. Yeah. yeah. And they have cloaks, yeah. Revenant hordes. These are Rune Wars models. I recognize that Johan also Johan also uses them. Yep. Yes, I love them. These are GW. Are they the Bone, one, bone Reapers? Uh? Uh? Yeah, bone, bone, Reapers. bone Reapers range, correct? And my final Revenant Horde, which is the older Great Guard range. Skeleton Spearman. 
certain warriors, mantic monk. I have two hordes of certain warriors. And here we have my soul reaver infantry. So these for are these, the Basilian. Yeah, they're actually the uh, Basilian Paladin. I bought these uh, vampire kits from a company online. I think it's Puppet 4. Yeah, and they fit pretty nicely. Raves. These are my thick. But I have uh, a lot of raves. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of raves. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of raves. They are very good, right? Well, they went to Speed 7 in uh, 3rd edition, which is a... Uh, yeah, Speed 7. Well, my final troop of raves. Zombie Horde. Two regiments of zombies and form up to a horde. Here we have my werewolves. And uh, these are my first unit of whites. Whiskey's model. I like them because they're kind of they're floating in the air. Mm. Mm. Second unit of whites. And these are from a board game. Zombie Trolls. I think zombie trolls are metal because they look awesome. But really, metal is just too heavy and I... Yeah, I mean, so they actually have one plastic zombie troll in the, uh, that, that box game they had. What was it called again? Um, Dungeon Saga. Oh, yeah, 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 correct. But it's, it's only one model, you know, I, I really hope they release it as part of the normal range. So this is the Mantic one? Metal? Uh, no, no, these are from uh, Titan Forge. Mantic one are nicer, I, I would say. Okay. Just like metal and it's right. Mantic, Kinkin, come out with PVC or plastic, please. <laughs> yep, and these are uh, my second board of zombie trolls. My third board. This is the Ogre Kingdoms, yeah. uh. Ogre Kingdoms Kingdom. with a different head. Yeah. The Vargas oh, oh, yeah, okay. So they have to scale with the Ogre bodies. Goblet, the weird miniatures model is from Malifaux. And my second Goblet, which is from Whiskey. Skeleton Archers, Death Packs. Oh, I should showcase my Death Pack. <laughs> <laughs> you have pictures? Uh, yes. Um, no, but I can go bring them just to be over. Jarvis, and I'm using this vampire model as a Lady Ilona. And this guy is my Morgoth. Oh, nice. It's actually a really old model. I think it's from uh, Animal Tactics. And uh, yeah, this guy, I'm using him as the new hero, uh, Zrinok Endblood, guy who uh, buffs uh, skeleton units. But he's actually, he's actually an, uh, an Arthur I believe. Yep, which is supposed to be some sort of salamander. Yep, the real fire catapults. <laughs> That's my undead army, actually. How do you do the black and white? Is it just a noun oil on a white base? I spray the models black first, and then I do a, a zenithal kind of white spray, covering like most of the uh, the upper areas. So naturally, we like to follow them. Following that, I actually use a black wash. I'm using Vallejo black wash, okay. and uh, I, I add some matte um, medium inside, wash more matte. I do an all over wash on the roof. Model, except I do, I only do a very light base of wash on the like, weapons or, or areas that I want a very strong glow. Following that, I will apply the uh, Vallejo fluorescent paint. Mm. I'm, I'm using two colors I'm using uh, fluorescent green and fluorescent yellow. I kind of mix the two. I use green first and then I do a certain coat yellow added in, kind of make it stronger and more like fluorescent. That's how I achieve the army look. Awesome. Nice. So we have come close to the very end. Let me showcase my in the middle. Oh, yes. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the roaches. Disgusting. This uh, Johan, he bought toy roaches and he pasted it on the base and then even one of it is coming out of the spare giant's head. So, uh, <laughs> it's really quite gross when I see it, but uh, job well done. Then, uh, the second unit will be not so gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like nightmare fuel, dude. <laughs> uh, oh, gross little things. So, so Johan has uh, three armies, right? Um, Undead, Abyssal Dwarfs, and Ogres, and uh, you are... So Ogres are my first army, and then I jump into Undead, because Soul River Infantries, thank you. And then, 
I started Abyssal Dwarf because I wanted war machines, uh, war engines, sorry. From so from Abyssal Dwarf, I started expanding into three dwarfs and Imperial Dwarfs as well. Since I they are all dwarfs, I'm just going to play them as Abyssal Free Dwarfs and Abyssal Imperial Dwarfs. Mm. Yeah, that's about it. Recently, I coerced my wife to buy me the Baratheon Knights, so <laughs> maybe I'm going to start a Brotherhood army, not, but not so soon. Yeah. So how how do you uh convince her? Uh, I forgot what was the story. <laughs> nah, it's actually what you use coerced. Nah, actually, because every year I would just buy my wife something special whenever I got my bonus, and I, I never get anything back. So this year I was like, hey, in April, hey, you got your bonus. Should you <laughs> buy something for me? Um, uh, let's see. I want. I, I kind of want these new releases from Baratheons. Yeah. Alright, alright. That's how I got my Baratheon army. Well done. And I'd like you to re- recap something because when you're playing War Machine and Hordes, you had your True Bloods army and it was painted by your wife, right? Yes. Yeah, so we were so jealous. Is... <laughs> so my wife is very good at handicraft. Uh, she does all sorts of handicrafts from scratch books to, to nail to, to pedicure and manicure and now she's doing sewing, patchworks, all this. So when I first got into wargaming, I, I have no idea how to paint my armies. And I'm pretty much a gamer more than a hobbyist when I started. I told my wife, hey, paint for me, please. And she was pretty interested in it because it's something new to her. So every time she would paint, she would post pictures of it and I get to play the painted model. So <laughs> <laughs> that's how I, uh, that's how, how my models get painted initially. And then eventually she stopped. She got tired of it and then I had to pick up painting myself. But she painted your whole Trollblood's army, right? Not whole, there's too much. Most of it, okay. Yeah, but I would say more than 50%, yes. Okay, if you still have pictures of some of them, do send it over and I'll splash it on the screen to show your wife's great work. Not a miniature, not a professional miniature painter, but because of her uh, nail art and uh, nail art skills, basically, she is able to paint and it's very impressive for all of us that, you know, we just... Me and Johan, we started about the same time. Pretty much, my painting was still so crappy that his models were so nice. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let's see if uh, there's any last words to say, Keith and Johan. You know, for me personally, I, I kind of try and balance both aspects, the hobby and gaming. And you know, it's, it's not always easy because, you know, we all, we all have our lives and our work and all. But uh, I've been doing quite okay, I guess. And you know, with, the, with COVID and all last year and all the lockdowns, I managed to get a lot painted, actually. <laughs> All the better for playing this year, right? Yeah, how was uh, how's the ETC experience? I was actually the reserve player for uh, Team Singapore, and uh, someone dropped out like just like one four before the ETC. So I had to go in into it with like, what, six games of practice. <laughs> and then, you know, we, when we got there, we made really good friends with the, the, Swede, the Swedes, Swedish team. But they kind of, kind of mentored us in a way. You know, I, I, I always recall, we asked them, so how many games do you play each of you practice for this one year? And they said like, oh, each player plays about 200 games. What? 200 games. Over a year. Over one year to practice for EDC. And we were like, what? Because... Like, That's I four games our, a week, right? Four games a week, you know? Yeah, I think our entire team's number of games, right? I don't think it could, I don't think it even hits 200. I think it's like, you know, I, I, we had some players like Justin, you know, who tried his best to do like one one or two games a week. And that was really like, top, like that was really stretching it, you know, really hard to get in like four games a week. So, yeah, I think our team, like, we went in in a way kind of, a bit naively hoping that we would go for podium finish, but 
Then we finished like somewhere in the middle, which apparently is quite um, a good achievement for a country that I only joined ETC for like two years or so. I really hope that you know I could I had the chance to go travel again for one of these major tournaments in the near future and travel up again. So and I highly recommend if any of you have a chance to travel for a large tournament, you know, where you have many countries playing, just go for it. Because you won't regret it. I meet a lot yeah. of really cool people. You know, I met people who are, are like scientists, I don't know, magistrates, like crazy clever people. And it was really fun because there was beer, there was like <laughs> there were there were barmaids and everything. And it was it was a really cool experience. And uh, I you know got to really feel that sense that there was a lot of mutual respect. So you know, even though there was like a competitive nature that we were all there to win, I still felt a lot of respect for each other as gamers, hobbyists, right? And you walk around, you know, we, we like did swapping of team jerseys. So I ended up with like quite a whole bunch of jerseys, including one of the church. But I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I highly recommend going overseas for a, a large tournament experience. You know, whatever it is, be it, if it's LVO, if it's whatever, you know, anything, just go for it. Yeah, I concur. And although I just traveled to Malaysia for the World of Hearts one, it was a really, really good experience. The people, like, like what he said, the people you meet, the things you talk about, and as an organize, as a, as a community pusher, I was talking to the Australian counterpart, and we were talking about how how we can manage our tournaments and campaign, just bounce ideas around and beer all around. So it's it's really fun to. I, I think wargaming is really the, the interactive part where you. Talk to other people rather than compared to console gamings or PC gamings where you sit in front of screen, you see nothing. Well, nowadays, you, you might see the people over there if they have camera, but it's, it's a different kind of interaction. So it's really fun to travel for events. If we ever have any chance at all for Kings of War, it would be good. Uh, yeah, we do hope. Make it happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a really, really, really great experience to travel for. Events, wargaming events overseas, yeah. Yeah, let's hope to have a Kings of War team tournaments, world team tournaments in future. It doesn't have to be team tournament, tournament as well. Just can be singles as well, yeah. yeah. Well, the closest uh, big one for us will be CanCon, and uh, Matt Crozier in Australia is hosting the Kings of War part of the tournament. Uh, from what I heard, the 2022 one is in January, will be held. Uh, very close to the CanCon venue, but off-site to manage the COVID risk. So if you're interested, we might want to look into that. Still not sure how the COVID situation is going to pan out and whether the borders will be opened up for us. So we'll see how it goes. So just a quick showcase of my models uh, that I just finished on the painting table. This are uh, Ogre Palace Guard, but I used the Mantic usual ogres. And I added uh, cloaks behind them made of paper. Oh, the sun's reflection that's, is... That's not the important part. The important part are those those spiky things on top. And the spiky things on top, they are actually false eyelashes. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like this, like the fed, feathered back, right? So, but they are false eyelashes. I just painted them white. So they look pretty cool and grand and a little bit exotic as well. They look like they have a feathered collars. Yep. So next thing on my painting table would be the uh, men, uh, what do you call this? The Chinese spearmen for my Chinese kingdoms of men army. Uh, this is fully contrast. On top of that, right, uh, the model comes in this base uh, white color plastic. Right, it's I think it's board game plastic or something like that. It's a bit soft because you see the spear can bend. Can you see it? 
Um, yeah, I don't know what plastic it is, but because it's white, right? I just paint my contrast paint directly onto it. I never even prime it. I didn't even prime it and it still looks not bad. Uh. Right? Yeah, it's good. So, so you, you, may, you may want to punish it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I don't think I'll... <laughs> Depends on how much I play with these models, whether the paint will come off. Well, if you, if you multi-base them, it won't, it won't really touch them. Yeah, true, true. And I think uh, that's all for today, right? Anyone has anything else to add? No, if I not, think we're good. we'll call it a show. And thank you for listening in. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See you.